Who cares wins? Phrase or meaningful question? A podcast for the deep thinker, the curious intellect, and for those who care deeply about the planet. Also, sometimes referred to as who cares who wins. Hello and welcome to Who Cares Wins with me, Lily Cole. I'm deeply in love with and also very concerned for our planet. And in this podcast series, I want to unearth different climate solutions that we can get on board with, including looking at contradictions and divergent opinions. And in case you're not a walking Wikipedia, we'll be hearing more from our lovely producer, Kelsey, who'll be springing in from time to time to help clarify any moments or statistics for you. Hi, Kelsey. Hello, Lily. So far in this series of Who Cares Wins, we've heard from many different women about different female perspectives looking at the intersections between gender equality and environmentalism. And in these next few episodes, I also wanted to dig into some male perspectives of fatherhood, of being queer, of acknowledging privilege, and ultimately looking at how equality might benefit everyone. Just over a month ago, I had the honour of being interviewed by Chris Sweeney, host of the Homo Sapiens podcast, where I shared a little bit about my queer journey. You can hear that episode soon. And today I wanted to flip the script and ask him a thing or two. Also a director, Chris has taken the podcasting world by storm, having founded the smash hit Homo Sapiens podcast, which looks at the world from a queer perspective. In between our two conversations, Chris also became a father. So we began the conversation there. This is quite special. Hi, Chris. Hi. Isn't it special? I feel like we're doing a second act of a wonderful discussion we had before. Am I allowed to say that? Temporary? Yeah, you are. And that's why it feels special, because I know that in between our first conversation and this conversation, my life hasn't changed that radically, but your (laughs) life has changed massively. (laughs) It has. You're right. You've brought another human into the world. How does it feel? It feels great. I think that, I don't know, like you get so much advice and if you're seeking to try and do it well, you try and get lots of advice. But as with all those things, it's a bit like, hmm, I still don't know how I'm going to feel, you know, and actually it feels great. And I think I feel amazing and I feel very lucky. Is That's my main thing. I feel blessed, if that makes any sense. Yeah, of course. Makes total sense. I still, my daughter's six, about to be seven, and I still feel so blessed all the time. Mm, yeah. Mm. And I'm sure that hopefully will never end. <laughs> <laughs> did you always want to be a father? I think I did. Yeah, I think I did. I tell you what is really interesting is I just didn't think as a gay man I could for a long, long time. And I knew I could adopt and all of those things. And I had thought maybe that would be my route. But there was no groundswell of other people doing it. And it's that classic thing, you've got to see it to be it. And I thought that probably I would just have lots of godchildren, you know, because my godfather was a gay man and he was a huge part of our life. And, you know, family is whatever you make it, as we know. And so I thought maybe I would just have a sort of a more unusual family. But in the sort of last 10 to 12 years 
basically since Elton John had kids, like it has become something that people talk about more. And I'm talking kids biologically. I just never thought I would. I thought maybe I could try and become a dad in some other way. And all of them are valid. I'm keen to point out. But yeah, it feels great and and wonderful. And I'm so thrilled I've been able to do it. There's a chapter in my book where I look at the intersections between gender equality and environmentalism. And as you can imagine, most of that's looking at women's equality because Mm. in most part, you know, kind of most um, areas, women are still unequal. Mm. But I also look at men's equality with regards to fathering, Mm. where often, not always, men have actually in recent years sometimes had less rights. And I'm sort of trying to make the case that the two are intertwined, that we can't expect or have equality for women if we don't also expect and have equality for men in all areas, Mm. including as involved, proactive fathers. Yeah, 100%. And in my research, I thought you might be interested in this, an anthropologist called Peggy Reeve Sanday studied 112 different societies to see how their creation myths impacted their gender attitudes and found mm. that in societies with a female deity, so a female kind of godlike figure, fathers were nearly four times as likely to look after the infants compared to those with a male deity. That's extraordinary. Isn't that interesting? It really is. How it culturally conditioned our roles as in different genders, but also as like fathers and mothers might be. Yeah, and you're reminding me of who, I was talking to somebody over lockdown who did some research. It was a therapist called Nedra Tawab who came on the our podcast. You, Lily, will love her. I, I'm a bit sad and go on about her all the time. Anyway, so she's on Instagram, at Nedra Tawab, and she was talking about how LGBT parents actually are much better at dividing the roles of parenting purely because they don't have those traditional kind of tram lines of like, this is what you do, this is what I do. And so everything has to be discussed. And I think that even in today... I'm in Los Angeles right now. You know, this is a liberal, progressive place in some respects. There's not a lot of men pushing strollers around, you know. Like, it's still Mm. very, very traditional. And I don't see a a ton of change there, actually. That's so interesting. And that makes sense. When I was pregnant with my daughter, I read an article in the FT that talked about, like, the fact that so many of us go into, or so many people go into becoming parents without any conversation of roles Mm. in advance and if you don't have that conversation then it's very likely you'll sort of just fall into the pattern of your parents and your grandparents Mm. and go into kind of more old-fashioned assumptions about the mother's role and the father's role hence maybe seeing less men pushing strollers and inspired by that article I made sure that when I was pregnant that me and my daughter's dad really talked about it and talked Mm. about kind of our expectations and we made a sort of joke post-it note contract of dividing up everything 50 50 i love that <laughs> yeah except for breastfeeding <laughs> and did it stick <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah totally totally i mean of course there's always going to be slight differences because you have different people with different skills and things going on but by and large it's really i think set a kind of framework of expectation that's been really helpful for him as well as for me and for my daughter too i think well the dream and i have to say like this is this is something that I talk about all the time on our po- my podcast is because 
we don't talk about anything in relationships. We expect to just be understood. And actually, because I think it's sort of slightly deemed as being dull or something, you know, to sort of sit down and go, how are we going to do this? But if you do, it is so wonderful. And me and my husband totally had discussions about what we're going to do with raising our daughter and how we're going to divide it. And also what's really funny, and I feel like something I keep saying to people, is if you as a man tell people you're having a child, it's so fascinating, even as a gay man, they're like, oh, that's lovely. And then they kind of skip on to start talking about how you basically as if your life isn't going to change because there is an (laughs) assumption that there is someone else somewhere who will actually be the person doing the legwork on raising it. And it's really fascinating that, and this is in the media, you know, like allegedly, again, a sort of liberal forward thinking place. The assumptions is just baked in. Well, there's just so many things we don't question. I mean, the fact that most women still give up their surnames when they get married and give their children most often the male surname isn't really kind of questioned the fact that we kind of idolize male sports and like have so much more emphasis on male sports rather than female sports or mixed gender sports there's just so many of these things that are actually when you look at them with a bit of distance so obviously imbalanced and yet I think no one really very few people not no one no one like just not it's <laughs> just not a mainstream conversation just <laughs> you and me but the only thing you know but it is like but then also what because I think about this stuff all the time like and what I think is also then fascinating is like you said a second ago about how you in your book you said that you have to give the the men the equality as well as the women which I know is like men aren't lower on equality but I sometimes think like that with sport because sport just never connected to me don't understand it don't if evaporated I wouldn't care I think exercise is great but it just didn't speak to me But in some respects, it's like, I go, well, just because I don't understand it, they still need it. You know, you you have to sort of let let lots of men who like football have football, for example. But how do you let them have it while also not taking up 99% of the room? You know, like, why are the headlines in the sports section of the news? Men, 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 men. And then they're like, oh, by the way, the England women's football team played today. And you can sort of hear them trying to put some effort into it, but they just can't really well I was I was the only girl on my school football team in primary school and I was an avid footballer football fan and my hopes of playing in Man United were dashed by the fact that I was a woman <laughs> were you good <laughs> I mean my friend actually very nearly played professionally and he says I was good so I'm going to quote him on that I was good that said I think our team were really shit we played one one away <laughs> game <laughs> we played one away game ever and we lost 13 nil. and there's this like hilarious photograph of the team at the end of the match and everyone looks all the boys look so dour because they've just been bashed and I'm there with my arms in the air just like cheering <laughs> just so delighted to have played well Lily was ahead of her time the FA announced that both the England men and women's team will be paid equally And the women's 2021 FA Cup final drew in a peak audience of 1.3 million. Were you one of the ones watching? So women's football may be growing in popularity. But the men's FA Cup final was watched by 8.9 million. So we still have a way to go. But were you an anomaly for being on that team or was it okay in your school? I was an anomaly, yeah. I was 
yeah, I was the only girl on the team, but I didn't ever feel like that was a problem because I had lots of, I was sort of just like, I don't know, I just sort of navigated between a group of female friends and a group of male friends in the playground. Mm. And for some reason, they were quite separate, but that was never an issue. I never considered it an issue at all. Didn't really think about it. Did you really enjoy, because I only spent all my time with girls as a kid. Okay. I, I just, I don't know, they were my people. But did you really enjoy the company of boys as a younger kid? Because it's so gendered when you're younger. I did. And I'm still one of my best friends is from that age. Mm. A couple of my best friends, one, one female, one male. Yeah, I did. I really liked hanging out with the guys. And I actually struggled in my next school, which was a girls only school. I think I struggled a lot more there. And then when I went to the, third, the school after that, it was five boys to every girl. And I felt mm. somehow better in that environment. So I don't know, I have, mixed, I have kind of mixed friends, but I feel like the mix is good. I literally think like all male things or all female things both have their pitfalls. And I think mixed everything is just the dream. I think it's, I just love it for whatever reason. Yeah, me too. And tell me a little bit about your experience with being this queer ambassador i don't know the right way to say it <laughs> flying the flag of queer perspectives in the world like yeah tell me a little bit of your journey into that why you're inspired to do the podcast so the podcast started because well so i started out as a music video director and i through doing that did lots of videos for will young and we ended up getting on really well and we became friends and we used to just you know talk as friends do and we're having a conversation at some one point about something very specifically gay, but we were laughing because it was like, oh my God, that's so true. Everyone thinks it. And I was like, it's so odd how you never hear conversations like this outside of gay people talking to each other. You would never hear this on the radio. And I was like, then the it was the anniversary of Women's Hour on Radio 4. And it's such an institution. And they were doing 50-year anniversary and they were talking about how actually 40% of their listeners are men. And they have to cater to that male audience, which is mm. hysterical, given the one hour a day Women's Hour gets. And then, and I was like, why has nobody done the queer version of Women's Hour? Where you just look at like, what's going on in the world? What does Ukraine right now mean for queer people? How are LGBT people getting out of Ukraine? Blah, blah. You know, I was like, no one's ever done it. And so I started to research it. And I realised that actually it's quite a complicated thing to put together because you've got lots of little interviews and it would be a full-time job, basically. Will has a very had a very busy life, as do I. So, you know, it's like, we're not going to do that. But I said to him, I want to do it. And he was like, well, I'd like to do it with you. So we basically sort of did our own version where we were like, let's not try and get this commissioned by the BBC or whatever. Let's just get my iPhone, put it on the kitchen table and just start talking. And it kind of just became this conversation that we spoke about stuff that he'd never really spoken about so much. He was talking about, I can't remember the first conversation, it was like memories of being uh, gay and on Pop Idol, basically, and being asked to to kiss George Michael at the Brit Awards. That was it. Because they said, Let, why don't you do a Britney and Madonna style thing? And all the sort of problematic things about that that would mm -hmm. just at the time would not have been discussed. And then we went off, took ourselves off to interview Owen Jones and chatted to him over his kitchen table. And it was always meant to be really, really informal because I think what's really interesting about being queer, as you will, you know, find 
I bet I bet more and more is that like you are asked to be an activist all the time and that's fine it's like you know listen let's fight for rights for everybody and all the rest of it but at the same time like you do just chat and then you don't always want to be the person who's brought on to just talk about rights and then is wheeled off you actually just want to talk about life so that's mm. sort of what we tried to do and I think we've done like 200 episodes now or something it's honestly Lily it has been the most joyous thing I've ever done in my life it would be oh, if you said you can evaporate everything else in your life work-wise and you keep that would you be happy I'd be like happy as a clown because wow. we have this whole community of listeners who write in who say this has changed my life I love it and it's so nutritious and warm and rewarding. And I think what is quite interesting is I think the internet and things like social media are often thought of as things that are quite like a bit of a sort of playing with fire, if you know what I mean. Like, yes, you're on it, but people are really horrible to you. It's different because also because I'm not famous, so I don't have to deal with that stuff. But it's just pure warmth and it does a good thing for people. And I think that's wonderful. And do you think it's possible to identify what's unique about a queer perspective, if there's any kind of commonalities in those 200 episodes? Perhaps I think the thread is that you do not just associate your experience of life through your gender. It's so much more. And actually often tons of things you take from the other people on the spectrum of gender. I think that's what it is. And, and actually you end up with revelations a lot of the time, but also you end up laughing loads you know, like a fun version is like the amount of weird 90s pop songs that all queer people love. <laughs> there you go. There's the unique bit on the queer perspective. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> how is it only, and perhaps this is slightly more gay men, the specific example, how is it only gay men loved that song? You know what I mean? It's something about it. I don't know. It's uh, mm. So it's varied, but a lot of fun. So in a way, it's sort of maybe challenging the the very rigid stereotypes for what being a woman being a man being a mother being a father might be yeah. in modern society kind of allowing some more fluidity which I feel like everyone would benefit from even if they don't identify as queer yes totally because it's they're so rigid those stereotypes we get kind of put into absolutely and I think that in fact I wonder if you found this a bit with modeling like if you win if you win at representing femininity or in your case, or win at representing masculinity, it can actually be more of a prison in some respects because, you know, you'll be doing it and you're like, but actually, I don't think I am this idea of a woman. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And But I have to sort of now keep that a secret? I don't know. Does that resonate at all? Because I, I know the male version of me. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, I was very feminised in many things. And I think as I've gotten older, I'm actually a bit, like, per being on the football team, I'm a bit of a tomboy, you know, actually. Mm. I like dressing up too. It can be fun. But I also, most days, like to just be a bit of a tomboy. I was had an alter ego called Louie last year. And actually I'm doing, yeah, and I was doing this film and calling myself Louie for some reason while I was doing it. And it's actually a really queer film, awesome film um, about Hilmar Afklin, the oh, artist. Yeah. And actually one of the actresses, we're just about to do the ADR, so the voiceover stuff, and one of the actresses just texted me saying, hey, Louie, how are you doing? So, for context, Hilma Afklint was a Swedish artist who is considered by many art historians the first abstract artist in the West. A biopic film has been made about her and the woman she worked with and loved by the Swedish director Lasse Hallström. 
to be released later this year. That's fascinating because I used to play a game with my sister when I was little called Those Two Ladies and we would just pretend to be two middle-aged women chatting about life. (laughs) And I I wonder if the Louis that you're talking about and those two ladies when I was much younger, it's almost like it was like a sort of release for another side of you that we are taught to really snip out in day-to-day life. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I was I was really lucky last week to meet Gabel Marte. So I met him last week and spent a bit of time with him, did a workshop, etc. And one of the things he was talking a lot about, what kind of focus of his work at that point was at this point was authenticity mm. and how important it is to try to be as authentic as possible as, as a human being. And and actually how difficult that is to really be authentic um to oneself. And his argument was, as I took it, um, was sort of like, no one really wants war or very few people want war to happen. And no one or hardly anyone wants us to be destroying the planet. And yet we are doing these things and we're continuing Mm. to do these things. And his argument was that that's down to a lack of authenticity. So if, if authenticity is a kind of key to our human salvation and ability to survive on this planet... (laughs) I think that's sort of interesting Uh-oh. how that connects to the, well, how it connects to the queer conversation, yes. because and I'd love to hear more about your experience of growing up gay and, you know, how difficult or not difficult that was and your mm. kind of journey of coming out. As we talked about when I came on your podcast, I kind of identified really late in my kind of late 20s, 30, early 30s as queer. And it was quite difficult to do that because I feel like I internalized so much of society's messaging around that not being good. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear your your experience of finding your own queer authenticity. Yeah, absolutely. And I do, I do just want to say as well, like I think the other thing that one of the other things that isn't talked about is like it is something that grows and develops and is changing. And I think even the idea of coming out, you know, is is nonsense in some respects. It can be the right way for lots of people, but. You should be allowed to be 40 and say, I actually think this, or 50 and I actually think I want to explore this. And I think that's one thing I'm sort of really keen on. Mm. Obviously, some people just don't because they're like, oh, it was a secret till then. But it's like, it can also just be like, maybe my up to 50 was about boys and now it's going to be about girls, you know? And also that you don't have to come out, right? And it's not like, there's not shame in... It's such a lovely thing. This lovely man we do exercise with, he said that his parents said to him, you don't have, just so you know, you don't have to come out. You can bring home boys, you can bring home girls, you can bring home whatever you want in between, but you just don't feel like you ever have to. You can if you want to, which I thought was such a nice thing and I'm absolutely going to be stealing that. That's um, beautiful. Yeah. yeah, it's such a like, just, it's, it's just And that so will beautiful. be the, that's the ideal, right? Because arguably the concept of coming out the concept of pride mm. is because we've been in a society of shame and secrecy, mm. whereas hopefully at some point those it will be irrelevant, you know, and mm. I think we're getting mm. closer and closer to that. Yeah, and I think authenticity is really interesting because I don't think it was something I was, I don't think I was born with the software. Like I, I'm a people pleaser, you know, mm. and actually I often have said that it was kind of on my side that I was a very feminine young boy because other people pointed at me and told me I was gay. (laughs) So I sort of had to come out because if I had been 
very much more straight passing, as they call it, I probably would have stayed in the closet longer because I would never want to upset the status quo. But I was always a very feminine kid. I, you know, I grew up with my sister and down the road was a family who were four girls. We all hung out all the time. And, you know, if we were playing princesses, they'd be like, right, we need a prince and would like say to me, you have to be the prince. I'd be like, no way. I want to be one of the princesses. One of you can be the prince. And I would wear dresses. And I was, you know, such a happy kid in that respect and then I think when you're about four you kind of work out that people find that odd and my parents never questioned anything they were like if he wants dolls he can have dolls like my dad was a fashion photographer my mum was a stylist like it was a very creative inclusive house I'm not saying it was free of homophobia you know like that stuff runs deep. And I think culturally, even if your children are queer, you're scared for them and how they're going to, you know, all of that stuff. But yeah, I was definitely very, very happy in that and never told different until I kind of went out into the wider world. And I went to quite an uptight private school in Wimbledon. And they just thought I was weird. And it was not a particularly happy time for me as a result, because I sort of didn't fit in. And I think it's really funny, actually. I I was lying here. I was sitting here the other day, about two weeks ago, and I was like, isn't it funny that I went to an all-boys school? That's what they call them, right? Those private schools. And it's like, it wasn't for all boys at all. It was for one kind of boy. And that boy Mm. needed to be sporty, straight, this, that, the other. And my school at that time had a terrible track record of kids being bullied for being gay and just didn't explore difference at all and it's really saddens me however a teacher from there who works there now had sort of listened to the podcast and came on the podcast and spoke to us about how different it is now so I'm thrilled to hear that but those years weren't great you know because I felt different and I imagine uh, a lot of people felt like that. So it's a shame isn't it that we seem to so often in society not celebrate difference Mm. because diversity is so beautiful and it's like yeah. the heart of like nature is biodiversity, right? It's like mm. this difference. It, without that, it would, uh, things don't thrive. Yeah. Do you think that's changing in a positive way in our culture? Like, do you feel optimistic that trends are going in a progressive direction or not? I do. I really do. I think it unfortunately seems to be happening at the time of polarization. So I think that, you know, there is, if I was 15 now, I could go on Instagram And I could find people with hundreds of thousands of followers who are like me. And I think that is incredible not to be underestimated. And there would be shows like Heartstopper on Netflix, where it's telling a really positive, beautiful story about love, queer love. And so I think that's all brilliant. I think, however, there there is a lot of fear around queer people and that seems to be feeding into some other fear for people and that feels like it's getting worse as we know like you know don't say gay is just happening in Florida and all of that so it feels like you know steps forwards and steps backwards a little more context on the don't say gay reference from Chris Formerly known as the Parental Rights in Education Bill, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has signed into law a controversial piece of legislation aimed at restricting schools in the Sunshine State from teaching students about sexual orientation and gender issues. 
with teachers opening themselves up to lawsuits should they fail to comply. And I think that what's really interesting actually is about, I think there's a real line to be drawn between authenticity and safety. Because when you were saying, you know, oh, we, you know, we don't want wars and we don't want the climate crisis and things, I think that we make choices about safety over being better for the whole, if you know what I mean. And I think there's something about queer people that makes people feel unsafe, so they want them out. Whereas, in fact, you should embrace diversity and not fear it. You know what I mean? And I think that when it comes to, like, environmental stuff, I think that we sort of feel like we can't live without this stuff. So we're prioritising our own survival, weirdly, in those terrible choices that we make, rather than the greater good. And I say there's a link there. Rather than our actual survival, yeah, truth be told. Yeah, because you sort of look here, like six inches in front of your nose rather than 4,000 miles. And I think there's something in that link of authenticity and safety, which is we feel like safer as a group. So therefore, we're not authentic about ourselves. We put the group's opinion ahead of our own. Mm. And that's why people stay in the closet, you know? Yeah, I think that's a very important point. And I mean... Gebel Marty gave the example of like being a Holocaust survivor and Jewish in that situation. You wouldn't, if a Nazi knocked on the door, declare yourself Jewish because that's the authentic thing to do. And the authenticity it doesn't necessarily mean exposing yourself, but it just mm. means you're honest with yourself. And then you can use that honesty to then make decisions about how you want to be in the world and what you want to share. Yeah. And I think actually being different forced in any way so that you know, my version is being a queer man. And it forces you to look inside yourself and work out who you are, because there's something inside you that is not chiming with the outside world. And I think it's the biggest gift of life. I really do. I think to understand your difference and to understand to then do the work around knowing who you are as a result is... And loving yourself, right? And loving yourself. And... I think that as a result of being queer, you end up meeting other people who are way further ahead of you on that journey. So they teach you. And so if you don't have that, you're never going to know your true self. And I think it's not a life well lived. And what about, I know you've spoken about kind of privilege and Mm. alongside the kind of that sense of difference, there's also like a lot of privileges that both you and I have in different ways. How have you understood your own privileges and the needs to maybe share in some way that the platform, the access you have to think about diversity, etc.? Yeah, it's like, basically, this is not a problem at all. But you can feel really guilty for going to a private school in England. You're like, oh, God, I'm just a dreadful person. But you know, I think what Lady Phil, who runs UK Black Pride, is an activist herself and is an amazing woman. She says this wonderful thing, which is like, I don't mind about people having privilege. My problem is people who have privilege who don't try and help others up, <laughs> you know. And so it's like just trying to make sure that we are aware of the fact that I, as a gay white man, for example, having a podcast is like, there's tons of other gay white men I could speak to because they're the ones who are famous. But what about people outside of that in every gender spectrum? How can we represent it truly? And yeah, I feel like we do a good job that could always be better. And trying to unite as well, that we're all in it together and it's all the same fight. Totally. That being said, it does feel like 
there is a lot of division, right? And increasingly so, even within the LGBTQ plus gender equality fights, like feminist kind of positions. Is that something yes. that you've kind of explored or have any thoughts on? I try and be the platform rather than the spokesperson. And I wonder if that's because I don't think feminism needs my voice. It needs my support, but, you know, not a man's voice. But also, like, I think I am a director. That's my other job. And it's like, I think I quite enjoy being the stage and then people get on and do their thing on it. And so, you know, it's like we have a rule on the podcast, for example, that we would never talk about something without the person who represents it present. Mm, so, like, I love that. Yeah, and obviously, like, sometimes conversation goes in a set direction and then you move off. But, like, we did an episode about LGBT sex workers and how misunderstood the whole thing is. And, I, you know, if that was on lots of news stations, I think it would have been lots of people who aren't sex workers talking about why they're a problem. But actually, I was like... Making let's assumptions, just... basically. Yeah. yeah. So let's just talk to sex workers. And the same with, like, the sort of vicious transphobia that's going on around use of bathrooms and stuff like let's talk to trans people about it and mm -hmm. and actually more and more with the podcast I le have learned to shut up because you don't need me <laughs> I love that yeah and I totally agree I've tried with this podcast to just also bring together people with different opinions and diverse perspectives mm. because I think yeah the art of conversation and debate and dialogue is so important <laughs> You mentioned allyship. What does that mean to you to be like a male ally with feminists or with I mean, women? I think for me specifically, it's like I think I need to not get carried away with the fact that I much more identify with women than men and I'm still a man and I still look at all those privileges. Do you know what I mean? And just because I identify with them doesn't mean you are one and actually that's not your fight, as in it's your fight to support but it's not something you're actually dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis, you know. And so it's just about trying to give a platform for those people to speak and then marshal the conversation between people listening who then write in and stoke that fire. I don't mean fire in a debate sense. I mean, like, mm -hmm. get that going. Because people mm -hmm. are like, oh, I'm so pleased that person said that thing. This is what I felt. This has been my experience. And someone else will write in and go, oh, my God, me too. And, you know, I suppose it's about being a support a silent support in some respects do you think that men will benefit from the fight for women's equality 100 percent. but i don't think they on the whole i'm generalizing i don't think a lot of men think that so ryan o'connell do you know who that is the actor who wrote a show called special on netflix about being a gay man with cerebral palsy is very, very funny. And he came on the podcast and he said something which has just lodged in my brain so much, which is, he's very silly and funny. He was like, straight people are in hell. And he was sort of saying, you know, nobody has to sort of uphold the bullshit of gender more than straight people because we are afforded some freedom because we're like, sorry, I'm not in that club. But actually, <laughs> but actually the pressure on straight cis men, let's say, to perform as straight cis men is just as real as it is for queer men. And they actually don't feel like they are matching up to it at all. And that is creating the issue that I think that's sort of central to this idea of why they don't think feminism could help them. Because they're too busy trying to like hold up the walls of some weird Marlboro Man image they're supposed to uphold. And I think it's baked in everywhere. 
you know, and this is not new news, but I don't know. What do you think? I completely agree. And actually, I think that's a real kind of misstep of the communication around feminism is that it's often, not always, but often alienated men. And I think Mm. it's so important that we realise that we're all in many ways suffering from the trappings of the patriarchy and the rigid roles that has sort of afforded us and defined for us. And I think men in many ways suffer from that too. And Mm. therefore everyone will benefit from increasing equality and increasing fluidity in the roles we each allow each other. So yeah, I'm all for male feminists. And actually for me personally, funnily enough, I wasn't aware really actually of the kind of huge work that needed to be done around gender equality for women until a cis, white, older, male, straight friend convinced me. And I think that's because I was working in fashion, obviously from such a young age and since I was 14. And fashion is an industry that's very generous in many ways to women. Female models are often paid more than male models, for example, and it's Mm. a very kind of female-centric industry and also quite progressive in many ways in terms of the mindset. Culturally, I grew up with my sister and my mum, so we were like three strong women in the household. And so it just sort of wasn't on my radar as being like the most important issue. And Mm. then it was my male friend I mentioned who has been campaigning on this issue for a very long time that just got me thinking. And then the more I researched and sort of looked at the bigger picture, it became this like dawning awareness of like, oh, this might be the biggest thing we have to deal with. And I still sort of think that like one of the most important keys for solving the climate crisis will be gender equality. And that's sort Mm. of what we're exploring in this season of the podcast. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I suppose it's about time, isn't it? Like things develop and grow and perhaps fashion was a lily pad back then. But with surrounding conversations, you realise that then that's still got issues and all the rest of it. Oh, totally. Loads of issues that I see more clearly now. Yeah. But with your authenticity, because I think one of the things that I have always thought is amazing about you is that you did change your life. You know, you were doing something and you could have been a supermodel forever. You know, that's... Could have been much richer, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) You could have been much richer. And there would be nothing wrong with that. But where did you get that from? Because it feels like, for whatever reason, it's baked into you. It feels like it's in your bones to just be like, no, that doesn't feel right for me. Where did that come from? Thanks. It's a generous question. I don't know. How do we know ourselves? What's Mm. nurture? What's nature? I have a very conscientious mum. Mm-hmm. who speaks her mind and I'm sure that was a big influence on me and it just doesn't feel good for me to not be honest and not be as authentic as I can be and that's not to say that I'm not in many ways still probably inauthentic because it's a process right of like working things out hence being somewhat in denial about being bisexual for so long mm. but when I know something's not sitting right with me when my kind of inner reality is not matching my like outer action, it it just doesn't genuinely feel good. Mm. And so in a way, it's actually kind of self-serving. It feels better <laughs> for me when I'm in alignment, you know. But when you make those big drastic changes, is it equally as scary? Oh, yeah, totally. Mm. Like I have a line in my book, knowledge is power and power is responsibility. That like mm. if you don't know something, when I was a teenager and I would go into like a fast fashion store, It'd be amazing, mm. be great, mm. you know, just buy loads of crap clothes for hardly any money, which I didn't have much at the time. And mm. it felt great. And that ignorance was bliss. And I don't judge yes. myself because I really genuinely didn't know what was going on. Once you start knowing what's going on, it's a very different experience. You know, if I was to mm. go into that store today with knowing what I know now about the, the way that 
different workers are abused in supply chains, the way that crappy clothes end up being usually thrown away and creating huge ecological problems that I think maybe half of the microplastics in the ocean come from the fact that most fashion now is plastic, blah, 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 blah. I could talk on and on about all the issues now that I understand. If I had that same experience, I would feel really shit. I wouldn't feel good at all about making those choices. And so I think the more information I have, the harder in a way it is to, because your choices become more narrowed. You sort of realize the consequences of your action. And being more specific, yeah, when I started saying no to particular jobs, of course it had a financial cost. But I was also aware that I didn't want to model forever and I had lots of other interests. So I was kind of happy to make those choices. I think it's really important to say that People who do those kinds of things, I think often people think they don't find it scary. The path to authenticity will be scary, I suppose, is the is the thing, which is why I want to ask you if you found it scary. If you were Yeah, just thank you. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I, I did find it scary. I don't come from money, so financially it was scary and also being judged and seeming annoying and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I still find it scary today. As soon as you talk about social environmental issues, you sort of become more targeted for all mm. the things you're getting wrong and not being perfect. And so I still find it scary because it feels important to me to talk about these issues, but I'm also always aware that I'm a hypocrite and I'm not perfect and sort of waiting to get told off for that. Have you ever seen that Jamila Jamil thing that she shares where she's like, why do you find this person in the public eye annoying? It's on her Instagram. It's like one of those saved stories. And she deconstructs how the press will take someone from being lauded to then deconstructing them and sharing pictures of them where they look slightly mad and stuff so you're Mm -hmm. like why do I find this person who I do not know and I think that happens to a lot of people who are doing environmental stuff as well they sort of get dissembled because they're speaking up yeah totally and that is still scares me to be honest but Mm. I don't think it can stop me because the stakes are too high you know Mm. that's the reality the stakes are too high yeah Back to you. Yes. (laughs) I wanted to ask you, did you come across this article in Queer Ecology that I mentioned to you now first? I'm sure you didn't because you've had a baby. but So I'll read you a few quotes from it that I pulled Mm. out. So it's by Timothy Morton called Queer Ecology. Ecological criticism and queer theory seem incompatible, but if they met, there would be a fantastic explosion. How shall we accomplish this perverse Frankensteinian meme splice? Let's do it in the name of ecology itself, which demands intimacies with other beings that queer theory also demands in another key. Just Mm. read Darwin. Evolution means that life forms are made of other life forms. Entities are mutually determining. They exist in relation to each other and derive from each other. Nothing exists independently and nothing comes from nothing. At the DNA level, the biosphere is permeable and boundaryless. Quote, the whole of the gene pool of the biosphere is available to all organisms, said Darwin. Mm. Mm. Life forms are liquid. Queer ecology requires a vocabulary envisioning this liquid life. And what about Mm. sexuality? Biodiversity and gender diversity are deeply intertwined. Cells reproduce asexually, like their single-celled ancestors, and the blastocyte attached to the uterus wall at the start of pregnancy. Plants and animals are hermaphroditic before they are bisexual and are bisexual before they are heterosexual. Males and females of most plants and half the animals can become hermaphrodites either together or in turn. And hermaphrodites can become male or female. I mean, you get the idea. Mm. Many switch gender constantly. I mean, it just goes on and on to make this point that I guess, yeah, life is liquid. It's not 
this kind of me and you separate duality yeah. that the kind of maybe heterosexual heteronormative perspective might insist upon and then the kind of different manifestations of sexuality in the natural world yeah and it's like when you read that it's like it just sounds magical and beautiful and inspiring and wonderful it sounds like another planet actually doesn't it it's like <laughs> it sounds like some magical kingdom you're like no that's here because for some unknown reason when it comes to humans we get sort of obsessed with the binary and I think that that is I don't know enough about this here we go but I'll say it anyway is that you know I think that a lot of that is structured around survival of like someone's got to look after the kids and someone's got to go out and hunt as in like way back when and someone's got to go and forage for the food and things fell into slightly more rigid structures based around survival but actually we're sort of way past that and so but we seem to be stuck in it and not wishing to admit that actually it could be so much more varied and colorful and beautiful but the good news is in our society, obviously not representative of the whole world, but in our society, it feels like that's really shifted and younger generations have much more kind of freedom to express in different ways, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think that my sort of continuing quest with the podcast is that I'll get a letter from someone who's 12 saying that they don't identify anywhere on the gender spectrum and they're happy and everyone supports them within their school and then I'll get a letter from a 15-year-old saying, I'm gay and I don't know what to do because everyone hates me. I think it's very varied. But I do think the conversation is there. And I think my mother saying, well, you know, what is they? Why are people they? Whatever. It has changed. There's a lot of change that's happened and happening. It feels great. And do you have any reasons to be optimistic that you'd like to share? Things that keep you optimistic? Tons. Do you know what genuinely keeps me optimistic, and I know social media is problematic, is sort of what I was saying earlier, is that like no matter who or what you identify as, you can go onto social media and you can find someone with 100,000 followers who's just like you. And I think that is wonderful. And I think as a result, finding people like you who can band together and educate each other about making the world a better place, I mean, what... That's amazing. It really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it allows us to open our minds to the different possibilities of being. Yeah, and you can just follow someone and go, right, I feel like being educated once a day when I open up Instagram and they share stuff and I learn and I feel uh, like it's a well of nourishment. And then just, you know, I try and avoid the stuff that isn't useful about it. Yeah, well, I have to follow you. I don't think I do. I'll look you up. Please do. There's lots of great content about not sure what. <laughs> well thank you thank you so much oh thank you it's been a pleasure it's been so lovely oh it was such a joy to speak with chris and also to meet his little girl after the recording i continue the fatherhood conversation next week with will mcdonald's from the father's institute an organization whose tagline is a great father for every child will share some insights into the challenges that dads and families are facing Thank you so much for listening to Who Cares Wins with me, Lily Cole. We are so grateful for the guidance and resources from She Changes Climate on this series, an organisation enabling women in all their diversity to lead just climate action globally. And for the music that's been provided by the very wonderful musician, Cosmo Sheldrake. If you like this episode and would like other people to hear it, 
We'd be so grateful if you would rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts from. And to hear reasons to be optimistic, we have another little Who Cares Wins drop this Friday. This is a Mags Creative production. Catch you next time. Bye.